Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 48th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 29th of March 2014 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the generous monthly sponsors Precious J, Derek McH, Ambrose A, Amir H and Jeffrey S. Thanks y'all for your continued support. You too can help keep me living the high life by clicking on that there donate button on the podcast website. This week we have the second part of our interview with Professor Andrew Kleiman. We continue our discussion about his latest book, The Failure of Capitalist Production, and in particular focus on Andrew's critique of the underconsumptionist theory of crisis, which is pretty dominant on both the Marxist and non-Marxist left alike. We hear how the empirical evidence sits squarely in the face of this theory, what role financialization has actually played in the economy, and the similarities between Keynesianism and underconsumptionism. We also talk about the new book Andrew is working on, and just how impressed I am by how Marx's theories are able to explain how the world around us works today. Now, the standard theory you hear from the left, certainly the Marxist left, is underconsumptionism. What is underconsumptionism? Well, underconsumptionism refers to a variety of different things. I focus on the underconsumptionist theory of crisis, economic downturns, recessions, and depressions. The underconsumptionist theory of crisis says that the core underlying cause the long-term, not immediate cause, but indirect cause of these crises and downturns is a lack of consumption spending. There's also investment spending, which is demand. And then you've got other things like imports and exports and government spending and so forth. But all of that can be broken down into consumption expenditures versus investment expenditures. So the underconsumptionist theory of crisis says that the underlying cause of these crises and downturns is a lack of consumer spending, consumption demand, rather than investment demand, rather than falling profitability being root causes, something like that. I tend to focus on the strongest, in the sense of most plausible, underconsumptionist account, which is that of Paul Baran and Paul Sweezy in their book Monopoly Capital. And what they argue is that investment demand cannot rise to pick up the slack caused by sluggish consumer demand because when all is said and done, investment demand cannot grow more rapidly than personal consumption demand. So the stagnation of personal consumption demand has to, when all is said and done, lead to a stagnation of total demand. And that stagnation of total demand eventually has to lead to either a stagnation of the economy or to periodic downturns in the economy. So the idea is that if the workers aren't being paid enough to buy the products of the economy. Right. 
you know, the main source of personal consumption demand is, is workers' wages and benefits. And so if one claims that their wages and benefits have stagnated, as the monthly review school has, then you can claim that consumption would have stagnated had it not been for workers having to borrow, borrow, borrow to keep up their consumption. Can investment demand pick up this slack? Yes, it can, and it has done so. <laughs> to understand why that is, one has to go into, into the theory of how investment demand is partly independent of consumption demand. Partly investment demand is not independent. For instance, you have ranchers, they raise cattle, and the cattle get used to produce hides, you know, leather, and the leather gets used to produce shoes. And then the whole process terminates in the production of shoes. People buy shoes, they wear shoes. So that is a process of investment in cattle, in leather, in shoe producing equipment. That's a process of investment that leads ultimately to consumption demand. So if there's not consumption demand, there's not going to be investment in cattle, in leather, in shoe producing equipment, and so forth. But there are other sectors in the economy that are not tied in that way to consumption demand. I mean, for instance, you can think of the following cycle, which is a part of what occurs in which you have iron being mined, and the iron is used to produce steel, and the steel is used to produce mining equipment. Then the mining equipment is used to produce more iron, and then that's used to produce more steel, used to produce more mining equipment, etc. So instead of a one-way process ultimately resulting in consumption by people, here you have a process in which it's what we call productive consumption. The, the companies themselves, the capitals themselves are consuming these inputs, the iron, the, the steel, and the mining equipment in the production of iron, steel, and mining equipment. And what, what is the empirical evidence then for this balance needed between consumption and investment? Well, there's not a balance needed for consumption and investment. The idea that you need a balance flows from this notion that in the end, investment demand can't grow faster than consumption demand. That's the claim, the under-consumptionist claim of Baran and Sweezy. And if investment demand can't grow faster than consumption demand, then you need a balance in supply output of investment goods and consumption goods. But in fact, investment demand can grow faster than consumption demand. And so the production of investment goods means of production can grow faster than production of consumer goods, means of consumption, and that can be sustained by the faster uh, investment demand. And in fact, looking at statistics for the United States, I found that in fact, since the bottom point of the Great Depression of the 1930s, there was indeed a great deal faster increase in investment goods than in purchases of consumption goods. The demand for investment goods did outstrip the growth of demand for consumption goods. So that's a pretty slam dunk statistic. I think so, in particular because the underconsumptionist argument is based in terms of investment goods in physical terms, consumption goods in physical terms. So you get a real rapid increase in physical investment versus consumer good production in physical terms. When you look at the prices of these things, 
it's not such a big effect because of consumer goods prices in the last uh, few decades rising faster than the prices of investment goods. And that's largely due to the cheapening of IT. Explaining the theoretical problems with underconsumptionism is very, very difficult. I always wonder how much is getting through to people. Getting people to understand that iron, steel, mining equipment thing is difficult. If you can think of the economy as a matrix and you're familiar with matrix algebra, it's a little clearer. For those who don't have that, it might be harder. But relating that and the idea that demand is in the end tethered to personal consumption, it just seems hard for people. I mean, look, the, the reason why people find underconsumptionism plausible is that they know that demand matters. Underconsumptionists then tend to see that it's consumption that drives profits. How does this change from how Marx would see it? Well, it's kind of a uh, 180 degrees change. I mean, for Marx, all of this is a process of capital. The capitalists wind up at the end of a period of production with some profit. And they invest part of that profit in production. The rest of the profit, you know, goes to dividends and, and so forth. Okay. But part of the profit that they invest in production is used to hire workers. So he counts that as investment. So the wages and benefits of the workers, they're the result of an investment decision. Okay. And that's resulting from past profit. And the personal consumption of the capitalist that's coming from dividends and so forth, that's coming from past profit as well. And the demand for machinery and factory buildings and office buildings, that investment demand is coming from past profit as well, in addition, of course, to, to, to borrowed funds. Rather than looking at consumption as in the driver's seat, for Marx, it's the past profit in particular and the decisions about whether to invest that profit or whether to hoard that, that profit like, like we might have and we have had at a moment in crisis. That's what's in the driver's seat. So is it underconsumptionism Marx dressed up as Keynes? There are people who call themselves Marxists who, who are underconsumptionists, but a lot of underconsumptionists are not Marxists. For instance, the former secretary of the Department of Labor of the United States got a new movie out, Robert Reich. His underlying thinking is, is the same, essentially, as that of, I think, Baran and Sweezy. And he talks about inequality, having depressed demand, and because of its depressing demand, that's the root of our economic problems and so forth. Now, as far as Keynes, Keynes had an ambiguous kind of attitude towards consumptionism. He said, that, look, the problem could be lack of consumption, could be a lack of investment. Why, you know, choose one or the other? But if you actually look at Keynesian theory, it is not under-consumptionist in the, in the particular sense that I outlined in discussing Baran and Sweezy. I mean, Keynes does not say, and there's nothing in Keynesian theory itself which says that investment demand cannot grow faster than personal consumption demand in the long run. But the idea that consumption drives the economy as opposed to investment that aspect of Keynes is in underconsumptionism. But I don't think that that's an aspect of Keynes. 
it probably is what a lot of Keynesians think. And people who are Keynesians and non-Keynesians, people tend to stress consumption demand because it's big. You know, in the U.S. economy, consumption is two-thirds or 70% of GDP. The problem is that it's a rather stable part of GDP. It doesn't fluctuate much. If you want to look at the ups and downs in the economy, you really have to look ups and downs in the investment spending. In my book, I looked at years in which investment spending fell and personal consumption spending fell between 1943 and 2007. That's a period of 65 years. And I think I found something like investment spending fell in 23 of those years. Personal consumption spending only fell in two of those years, 1974, I believe, and 1980. So the ups and downs in the economy are not in any real sense being driven by ups and downs in personal consumption. They're being driven by ups and downs in investment. And the immediate causes of that, you could say, are a collapse of animal spirits, which is a kind of a Keynesian explanation. In other words, if you want to look at it rather superficially, not wrongly, but rather superficially, all of a sudden the capitalists are saying, gee, let's not invest. You know, uh, expectations of the future have deteriorated. So they, they, they hold back from investment. That's not a bad explanation of this year versus last year. But to think that we've got a crisis because in some immediate sense, people have decided not to pay rent, you know, or not to buy food or not to put gasoline in their car. I mean, that doesn't happen. Yeah, sorry, I think I misstated what I meant to say. Is that Keynes thought that investment or consumption drives profit and not profit driving consumption and investment? Well, I think that that's more of a Koletskian notion. And by the way, this is one of the peculiarities of equilibrium reasoning. Because what Koletsky does is he takes an equilibrium equation and flips it around and thereby gets what is an effect he turns it into a cause, and what was a cause, he turns into an effect. This is his identity equation, is it? Yeah, it's an identity equation. So maybe that's better than saying it's an equilibrium condition. But if you look at the actual process, it, it's just as I described before. It's past profits that are the source of new investment funds, apart from credit. Past profits are the source of workers' wages, past profits that are the source of the, the dividends and the capitalist consumption. So it's not the, the demand that creates the profits, it's the profits that create the demand. A witch come first, the chicken or the egg? A witch come first, the chicken or the egg? How could something so fat and furry come from something so smooth and pearly? Oh, which come first, the chicken or the egg? Which come first, the feather or the shell? Which come first, the feather or the shell? When you see one egg or t'other, do you ever think about its mother? Oh, which come first, the feather or the shell? Now, eggs are awful pretty, lying on a plate, or sitting here in a cotton eating spray. Looking inside a box of eggs might make you feel so great. But do you ever wonder where there was before there was inside that crate? Which comes?
come first? How does financialization then play into this underconsumptionist theory for crisis? Right. Well, this is a rather modern twist on the theory. You have Baron and Sweezy who say, in the long term, we have downturns in the economy or underlying state of stagnation because investment demand cannot increase faster than consumption demand. And in the latest period, their disciples like uh, John Bellamy Foster and Fred Magdoff around the Journal Monthly Review, they say, well, you know, workers' wages and employee compensation, they've basically stagnated. So that would indicate that personal consumption demand you know, has been stagnating and pulling down investment demand. But there's really no evidence of that, and they're aware that there's no evidence for that. And so what they say is, ah, well, the personal consumption demand did not stagnate in the decades preceding the crisis because workers borrowed. And they borrowed more and more, and they became increasingly dependent on credit to maintain their standard of living. By the way, it's not only the Monthly Review School that says that, the Canadian political scientist Sam Gindin, who works with Leo Panitch, they say that. And in the New Left Project, the website New Left Project, I published a response to Sam Gindin that deals with this question. Workers did not become increasingly dependent on credit to sustain their consumption. Not in the US, at least. Was the financialization aspect of the theory used to describe the discrepancy they saw between how they measure profit and the rate of accumulation? A lot of people have claimed that the slowdown in productive investment, the, the rate of accumulation in, of productive capital, a lot of people have claimed that that slowdown in the rate of accumulation, the fall in the rate of accumulation, was due to a shifting of profit into financial investment away from productive investment. In the U.S., that really did not occur. As I said earlier, the, the firms maintained their productive investment as a share of their profit, even though a lot of more funds went into the financial markets, stock purchases, bond purchases, buying up companies and such, they maintained their productive investment nonetheless because of going into the the bond market. So financialization actually had the effect of not leading to productive investment fall on a share of profit. I mean, the rate of accumulation fell, but the rate of profit also fell. What is the political impact of all this analysis, do you think? What does the falling rate of profit mean with respect to the politics of the left? Right. Well, you know, a composite sketch of both what the underconsumptionists say and what various people who call themselves Keynesians and so forth say. Uh, I mean, they basically tell a story where the unions were smashed, the neoliberals come to power, and because workers' wages and compensation stagnating, profits go up, and this would lead to a booming economy, higher rate of profit, resurgence of the rate of profit under neoliberalism. The economy would have boomed if the capitalists had just plowed that profit back into production at normal rates, but they didn't do so because under neoliberalism, there was financialization, which is viewed as an aspect of neoliberalism, and they just preferred to play the stock market, gamble, pay high dividends, buy back the stock from the shareholders, high interest, and so we had slow economic growth. That's the the standard story. 
as I've tried to indicate here in, in, in our talk today, a lot of elements of that standard story just don't wash, at least for the United States. The fall in the rate of profit does explain a lot of the phenomena, directly or indirectly. The, the fall in the rate of profit is very closely tied to the fall in the, in the rate of accumulation, the sluggishness of investment. And the sluggishness of investment leads to sluggish economic growth. It's the main driver of economic growth. So if, if investment's sluggish you know, in production, economic growth will be sluggish. And slow economic growth leads to slow growth of incomes, and slow growth of incomes leads to all kinds of debt problems. It's harder to pay back your debt, to pay interest on your debt, if income is only growing slowly than when it's growing rapidly. And this lies behind the growth of treasury debt as a percentage of GDP and so forth and, and so on. So we've had all manner of debt crises. And we've had the government come in with expansionary fiscal policy, expansionary monetary policy to try to ameliorate or maybe reverse low profitability, sluggish investment, sluggish growth of output, sluggish growth of income, rising debt. They try to manage this with policies that create even more debt, lead to bubbles, lead to debt crises, and, and the whole thing kind of blew up. The, this underlying tendential fall in the rate of profit kind of leads us to reject the idea that there is an equilibrium setting for a capitalist economy. If that's true, how does this affect what people work for on the left? Right. That, that's the politics of the question. I got so wrapped up in the explanations, I neglected to actually answer the question. Okay, so according to the standard story, what is to blame is neoliberalism. Okay. There are the bad capitalists, and then there are the good capitalists. And prior to neoliberalism, we had the good capitalists that invest in production and hire workers and create a booming economy. And then we got the bad capitalists that choose not to invest in production. They prefer to gamble in the stock market. They prefer to live high, and they are the source of our problems. That analysis is tied up with the politics of siding with the good capitalists against the bad capitalists you know so what we need is a kinder and gentler capitalism is the upshot of this and let's fight and ally with the you know so-called progressive forces for capitalism and, and try to get a uh, high growth high investment capitalism when you say that there are fundamental problems in capitalist production rooted in Capital accumulating faster than employment, which is really part of what capitalism is about, leading to sluggish investment, falling capital accumulation. It's not a question of good capitalists versus bad capitalists. It's not greed. It's not their intentions to make things not work. They didn't want the recession. They didn't want this crisis. A tremendous amount of the wealth of the wealthy got wiped out. You know, between 2007 and 2009, their system is still very shaky. Things are not anywhere near back to normal. This is not good for them. This was not intentional. It's not a matter of greed. It's not a question of good capitalists versus bad capitalists. It's a question of the, the system doesn't function well, and it doesn't function well because this is just what capitalism is. The rate of profit tends to fall. It did fall. Profit is the fuel on which capitalism runs. 
and with the lack of fuel, it doesn't it doesn't run that well. And we're only going to overcome this this whole dynamic with an, an, another system that's uh, oriented to human beings and our need and our development, and not for more and more value being plowed into production for the sake of producing more and more value to be plowed back into production uh, ad infinitum. We can't keep on living like this. I'm in the middle of reading volume two at the moment. I'm just so impressed with Marx's work. Like, I'm so impressed that when, you know, these abstract concepts of value and all this different stuff, that when you actually look into empirical research for it, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing on some level it all works the way he said it would, you know? Yeah, I don't know if it always works. I mean, it, it really does illuminate the last several decades in the U.S. amazingly well, and I, I kind of like am embarrassed because there's this phenomenon that happens in science and it happens in economics where you get empirical results that are too good, you know, and because they're too good, you know, you're kind of suspicious of it, you know, and other people are definitely suspicious of it because things never should work out that well. It's, it's, it's kind of a problem. <laughs> You know, and it, it leads, I think, to suspicions that you're cooking the books or something like that. Some of it is just too good that the fall in the rate of accumulation is the same percentage as the fall in the rate of profit. You know, that's like amazing over the long haul, right? Or the fact that Marx's law is able to account for 94% or something of the fall in the rate of profit. That's just, those results are just like too good. <laughs> But what can I do? I can't make 94 into 73, you know? You know, Marx was a very smart guy, of course. But he was incredibly thorough and careful. And I think so much of the richness and the power of that book, Capital, has not to do with, you know, his insight, which I'm, I don't mean to discount, but his thoroughness and care, you know? I don't know if you've ever read his, like, theories of surplus value, that really discloses the process of working that he employed. I mean, he will just take, you know, a paragraph or something of some economist and what they would now call deconstruct it, but it's not really deconstruction. It's, it's an analysis. And he sees things that people would not see. And this is why people say, oh, you know, he's unfair to this one and this one meant and that one meant. Marx is like very aware of what these people meant. But he's looking at their formulations and saying these formulations are like not right because of this and that and the other thing. This discloses all kinds of new things for him. And he's very concerned with like logical contradictions. Like the whole stuff about labor versus labor power. That's all about a logical contradiction in classical economics. 
Did I hear you saying that you're thinking of doing some work on coming up with some thoughts on what a new system might be? Something like that. I, I'm not a believer, you know, in blueprints, in, in designing an economic system. So it, it's much more in the manner of here's what not to do rather than here's what to do. There are certain things that people think would work that I don't think would work, would just lead to capitalism in another form or to a non-viable system. And we have to be wary of that. It's important to understand what not to do. And I think Marx left us a lot of pointers about what not to do. And I want to try to draw out a lot of the implication of his work on this question. I mean, people say, oh, he theorized capitalism, not socialism. But what he did when theorizing capitalism he also looked at various supposed alternatives and said, look, these would not work. Alternatives coming from Proudhon, the so-called anarchists, or in the Gotha program, which were Lasallian proposals for fair distribution. Marx is saying, look, as long as you've got capitalist production, as long as you've got production for value, commodities, workers you know, selling their ability to work, you know, exchange of products, all of this, the, the problems that we have are going to persist because these are the root of the, the things, people selling their ability to work, production being not production for human need, people's work not being immediately counted as if you work an hour, that's an hour's contribution. Because we don't have that, this is why we, we have all of these problems, and they're just not going to be fixed by manipulating exchange, manipulating the distribution, who gets what. Politics is not really in the driver's seat here, and I think that's one of the most important ideas of Marx, and it gets scoffed at as economic determinism, but I think it's a real warning uh, in advance of the fact against political determinism of the, the 20th century you know, and it's persisting into the 21st century, the belief that putting different people in charge of the system, you know, or changing the titles to property, changing the legal arrangements, that belief that you're going to change the nature of society in these ways without changing the conditions and the relations by which we produce ourselves, our lives, and reproduce it, I think that political determinism has been very disaster. It's just been a total disaster. And Marx was warning against this idea that mere will and these political and legal means are going to change the nature of the society. You really have to change the nature of production, the goal of production, the role of people relative to production. In other words, are they just workers for somebody else or are they in charge of their own lives? These are the crucial questions we confront, it seems to me. So I, w I want to try to draw out some of those implications of Marx's work for today. Have you plans on a new book? I, I hope to turn this in, into a book. What I need is time. I haven't had sufficient time to, to, to work on this. Has it been in the work since this last book? Well, this was projected. This was in my head. Really, it was the next thing I was going to do after I wrote Reclaiming Marx's Capital, a book that came out in 2007. But what interrupted that was the economic crisis. I felt like I had to respond to the economic crisis. So I did with that book uh, that we've been discussing, and that took me a couple of years. Uh, and since then, there's just been continual need to keep intervening empirically, theoretically, uh, politically, 
uh, around the crisis. So my attention has been kind of diverted again and again, but I, I, I do hope that I'll be able to make progress on this book about, you know, an alternative to capital, Marx's conception of a new society and such. I do hope in the near future to be able to really get down to work on it. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for coming on the show again. Thank you again, Tom. Yeah. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, the Sun Ra and his orchestra, and Which Comes First song from Sesame Street. You also heard Temptation by Heaven 17, and you are now listening to Van Morrison telling us how he's been working. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Down, 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 down.